With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. Connor, it is now official. The Buccaneers and the Chiefs are meeting in Super Bowl 55. Ugh. God, I have a lot of bad Buccaneers takes that I have to delete from my Twitter account. Like the whole year was me writing, this isn't going to work out. This isn't going to work out. And here we are. I mean, my bold prediction before the season was that the Buccaneers would not make the playoffs. And yes, (laughs) here we are. So listen, it, it seemed improbable that you could switch teams in the middle of a pandemic. It seemed like these dream teams never work out. Uh New head coach, new offense, new skill position players around Brady. I mean, there were just a lot of reasons, which makes it even more impressive that he was able to do what he did. And he's added this new layer of appreciation for his legacy. It's it's hard to believe that after six Super Bowls, you would even have room to add to your legacy. But the fact that he is now going, to, even if they don't win, the fact that Tom Brady has led another team to the Super Bowl in his first season with the team in a pandemic interrupted off season, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, is really pretty remarkable and maybe the greatest achievement of his career. I was going to say, and Jenny wrote a great column about this. If, if anybody is interested in, and you should be, and you should go check it out on SI.com. But like when you're watching that game, what is going through your head in terms of just, you know, what more can I say about this guy? But at the same time, like what, uh, what kind of uncharted territory are we kind of driving into? Because this is, he's already more successful than Joe Montana. And then he pulls the Montana and then he bests that, uh, that sort of phase of his career as well. Yeah. A hundred percent. When he bested the four Super Bowls, won by Montana and Bradshaw, we thought, that that was going to be the crowning achievement. And then he not only had five, and then he had six, and now he has the opportunity to go for a seventh. You know what was going through my mind, Connor? What did he do in a past life to earn this? Right? Right? Like, was he a saint in his previous life, and he's now reincarnated as Tom Brady? I mean, it is just, it's really hard to fathom. And I do think, you know, it's good to take a second to say, we are covering this unprecedented era. You know, I I always kind of thought that about past Patriots Super Bowls. Everyone would say, well, it's boring that the Patriots are returning. But I always saw that, well, we have this opportunity to cover this really special era in sports, and we're seeing something live unfolding in front of us that a lot of people will never have the chance to see. Uh, So there is some appreciation there. But as soon as Brady came out with that first drive, I don't know about you, Connor. Uh, it just seemed like this was going to be, this was going to work out because going into the game, I thought this was the Packers' year, this is Rogers' year, and then Brady comes out with that first drive. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I know you have some well laid out topics in the show plan here, but 
Yeah, let's boogie. I would say uh, we're going to get into all that stuff. We have some fun non-Super Bowl talk, too, for the 30 uh, fans of 30 teams who uh, right. are not going to have a rooting interest in this game on Sunday. So, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Let's get into yeah. it. Yeah, all right. So let's dive in. Topic number one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers edged the Green Bay Packers 31-26 to at Lambeau Field on Sunday, earning Tom Brady an astonishing 10th trip to the Super Bowl. The former Patriots legend turned Florida Snowbird will now be part of NFL history once again, this time as the first quarterback to host the Super Bowl at his home stadium. Meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is trademark settle pissed with fans reading into his cryptic post-game remarks for more tea. A lot happening there, huh? Indeed, Connor. This game was just like a tea explosion afterwards. It really was. And I, you know, I don't know where you want to start, but maybe we start with the Packers and and Rodgers because I, I it, we know that he has a habit of using his bully pulpit to enact the kind of changes that he would like to see in the organization. Last year, I remember sitting in his press conference uh, out in California and San Francisco after they lost to the 49ers, and Rodgers was hopeful uh, in, in a way that sort of further legitimized Matt LaFleur, but he also directed a lot of angst towards Brian Gutekunst in the front office and saying, "I we need more help, we need more weapons. And then after an offseason where they did none of that, uh, the draft, I don't think, think yielded any offensive starters for the Packers. Um, uh, the free agency was was pretty uh, milk toast as far as that goes. Rodgers now comes out and says he doesn't know where he's going to be next year. He doesn't know what anybody's future is. And if that's not the biggest middle finger, I think, directed towards everybody, I think that's pretty significant. Not to mention another middle finger towards Matt LaFleur for uh, kicking the field goal there on fourth down instead of letting him go for it. Right. So there was a lot to process from this game, more so than the later game because you have Brady returning to his Super Bowl. You have Rodgers falling short again in the NFC Championship game. He hasn't been to a Super Bowl in a decade. And then he makes these cryptic post-game remarks. And I thought his post-game remarks were interesting because before the game, I had read a story from Jason Wildey, who works for ESPN Wisconsin and has covered the Packers for a long time. And he had an interview with Rodgers in which Rodgers was very self-reflective this week. And he was talking about how he had worked on being more in the moment, worrying less about the past and the future. Uh, talked about how he'd be, he was the guy in the locker room who was now giving speeches. He was talking about being kinder to the people around him. So it was kind of this like, you know, the Zen type of transformation. But then in this really emotional moment, it was really the Rogers that we've seen for much of the rest of his career, kind of putting out um, sly messages that you don't exactly know fully what they mean. And I mean, it makes sense. You're in this highly uh, tense game. You have a Super Bowl on the line. You fall short for the second year in a row. But ultimately what has happened now is there's this, grand shadow cast on the entire NFL offseason. And it's not just where will Deshaun Watson play next year. It's will Aaron Rodgers play with the Packers? Yeah. A lot of uh, fun uh, quarterback carousel uh, talk that we have 
coming up, but I want to ask you too, what did you think of, um, let's, let's take it like a, l- a little bit by little bit here, the field goal. Uh, so it's fourth and six, uh, with a little under five minutes left to play green Bay is trailing by eight points and Matt LaFleur opts to kick the field goal, which essentially covers him for the two point conversion on the next drive instead of letting Aaron Rodgers go for it. Aaron Rodgers had a running lane for the touchdown on third and six, but threw it away, assuming that LaFleur would let him go for it on fourth down, given the situation. What was your take on uh, on that? Yeah, that was a really baffling decision. I mean, you wrote about it well, and I think they had eight yards to go, right, Connor? I think they eight were on yards, the eight-yard yep. line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, okay, so they are, it's not like a fourth and one or a fourth and two, but also at that point, you say, we have Aaron Rodgers, we have to go for the touchdown here. You needed a touchdown anyway, so you're on the eight-yard line. Now is the time to go for the touchdown, and... I think if you're Aaron Rodgers, it's hard to look at that and say, why didn't the coach put the ball in my hands? Um, And why would you risk giving the ball back to Tom Brady when regardless of some of the ups and downs of the season or whatever the case may be, he's the kind of quarterback that knows how to close out a game. And he had an excellent first half. And if you give the ball back to him, you have to assume you're probably never going to see it again. So that's why it was very hard to understand. I know the win probabilities didn't end up looking that different, but you just have to think practically what that means. And you're essentially saying, we're not going to give Aaron Rodgers the chance to score the touchdown to potentially tie it up in this situation. I would like to give the... Vrenta's family another crack at these win probabilities because that did not feel satisfying <laughs> it to me. Right, and, right. So I think ESPN's uh, game probability model said that they had a ten percent chance it, uh, that uh, going for it increased their winning percentage chance uh, to ten percent, uh, kicking the field goal only up to to nine point five percent. So there's only a point five difference. If you look at Edge Sports, which was another game probability model, it was about a three and a half percent difference. Uh, I've seen other models. Um, uh, a Vegas odds maker that dabbles in sort of the NFL um, forecasting business had a model that actually the field goal increased their chances of winning by 3%. But I, I, I don't understand that at all. To me, you have to consider all the outlying factors there. Greatest, one of the most singularly talented quarterback in the game uh, versus, like you said, uh, the potential of putting Tom Brady on the field. How bad Mike Pettin's defense was for large chunks of that game on Sunday. And I don't know. I mean, just the optics of it. it if you're LaFleur, yes, you had two 13 and three seasons. You are a rising star in the coaching business, no doubt. But now you're the guy who holstered Rodgers with a Super Bowl on the line. And that's going to be really tough to live down, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other point that you raise is that Rodgers said after the game that he didn't run for it on third down thinking they would go for it on fourth so there was clearly some lapse in communication and I think that's a problem too is that the not only did Lafleur make this decision but the plan wasn't communicated clearly to the quarterback and he thought he had another down uh, which affected how he played the third down and I think that is just as much of a problem Right. Like you remember um, 
like after the Super Bowl comes out every year, uh, they release all the audio, NFL films, and we hear what the coaches and everybody are talking about. How many times are they three, four, or five plays down the road when stuff like that happens? Like, couldn't you imagine in Sean McVay or Bill Belichick's headset when they're communicating with their quarterback saying, if we don't get it here, we're going for it, so keep that in mind, or blah, blah, blah. Like, why didn't that happen? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine, and if... That conversation was had before third down. Okay, so what if Rodgers runs? Maybe he doesn't make it all the way, but it's a fourth and short. Uh, then that's an easier, yeah, easier conversion. I, I, I'm, I think that we need a little bit more of a breakdown of exactly what was communicated and when and what it went into that decision. I would like both of them to submit to a Mori lie detector test here uh, <laughs> because you're right. It's a little bit, tiny bit on Rogers too there because who cares? Like, you know, score yeah. on third down, you know, well, what you're not going to run for it because you thought you had another down, but run for it anyway, because then the next down is going to be easier. Right. Right. Like, right. I don't know. I, I think this, uh, the whole thing is kind of, uh, I don't know. It's fishy, Jenny. Yeah. But, uh, and but we have, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it also feeds into another point that you made on Sunday in that, why are we not seeing coaches be aggressive in certain situations, especially when, you're playing teams that you know you have to be aggressive against, whether it's Brady savvy late in the game or it's the Chiefs' ability to just put up massive amounts of points. If you're their opponent, you can't just sit and wait. And the other thing that sort of was strange to me was just how lackadaisical the Packers seemed with their pace, even mm-hmm. when they were trailing by a large margin. There wasn't an effort to like push the ball or, or be super up tempo. And that was also surprising to me. Yeah. Puzzling offensive calls. I mean, after the game, Matt LaFleur was open about how puzzling some of Petten's calls were defensively. Uh, and that's two uh, kind of rough NFC title games in a row for him. Um, and you have to imagine there might be some changes on that front in Green Bay. But, yeah. you know, to pivot over to Tampa, I think uh, for those of, you out there who view Tom Brady still as as the Darth Vader and you're saying, well, what can I root for in this Super Bowl that that just doesn't seem like very much fun at all? One fun note that I think a lot of people, uh, not fun, encouraging, uplifting note that I think a lot of people are pointing out, Tampa Bay, two female coaches on staff, all of their major coordinators, African-American. Let this be a notice to owners out there that, you know, this is a very large part of what got them there. I mean, Tom Brady threw three interceptions Tom Brady did not singularly lift this team to a Super Bowl. A very, very good coaching staff did. And I'm hoping that that can serve as an example for a lot of other teams as they're assembling their staffs right now. Yeah, and two back-to-back impressive performances from Todd Bowles' defense. Mm -hmm. First, they shut down Drew Brees, and they shut down Aaron Rodgers. So, uh, And with some injuries, they they didn't have Winfield. You know, they, they, they were without both starting safeties for half of the game at least. So uh, just impressive job scheming up a situation where they got a lot of pressure on Rodgers and were able to have good coverage on the back end as well. So um, definitely uh, Bulls is someone who deserves a second chance as the head coach, Connor. No doubt. Um, Yeah, yeah. what do you think? Talk some Bills and Chiefs? Let's let's do it. All right, I'm going to uh, pull up the topic right now. 
I always like it's Jenny. Jenny sometimes is like Aaron Rodgers. She can snipe me when I'm not when I don't have my topics ready. She's good at drawing me <laughs> off sides here. Um, so the Buffalo Bills fell to the Kansas City Chiefs, 38-24 on Sunday, earning Kansas City its second straight trip to the Super Bowl and the right to defend their Lombardi Trophy from 2020. Patrick Mahomes is terrific. Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy continue to look invincible together, and the Chiefs' defense managed to slow down what had been a red-hot Buffalo passing game all year. Can anyone, even the ageless, hyper-vitamin-taking Tom Brady, stop the Chiefs, Jenny? Yeah, that was what we were hoping for with the Chiefs' offense. I didn't buy their post-game narrative that people were doubting them, although there was this strange graphic on ESPN where someone gave a checkmark to Josh Allen, but I have no idea who picked Josh Allen over Patrick Mahomes. Matt Hasselbeck. Okay, but that was not the prevailing sentiment (laughs) of most people. Um, The Chiefs' offense had not looked like it had reached its full potential, sure, but I don't think anyone ever doubted that they had more to give, and certainly this showing was that. This was, you know... All of the problems that you have when trying to defend the Chiefs, both Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, and of course Mahomes, very difficult to pressure him and to get meaningful pressure on him uh, to a point where he can't get the ball off. He just always finds a way to escape and make some kind of off-balance throw and um, make a successful play. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting, though, with the Buccaneers front, and I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next topic, but the Buccaneers front got a lot of pressure on Aaron Rodgers, and they had Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul, the return of Vita Vey. So they do have the potential to pressure Mahomes, and that it would be the key to slowing down the Chiefs' offense in some way. Yeah, and with Buffalo, it, it was almost, I, I think a couple of people made this point, uh, LaFleur deserves to be roasted on, on his in-game decision-making, but McDermott's was almost worse over the course of the game because, you know, if you look at the little incremental percentages of, you know, win probability that he cost the butt bills for kicking field goal, kicking a field goal, kicking a field goal, um, those amounted to a much larger percentage of the reason that they lost. And to me, it's even more confounding because you had the best or the second best team in the league in percentage of drives that ended in a touchdown this year. You had a better, you scored more than the Chiefs this year. You had, you, and you had one of the best offensive coordinators in football. And I, their lack of aggression um, on Sunday was really strange. And I think that, um, I think that teams in general need to rethink the way that they're playing the Chiefs. I think John Harbaugh did a really good job in 2019 of when he played Kansas City, every time he scored, he went for two. And every time he had a fourth and manageable, he went for it. And the argument is this team scores more than anybody else. And so we have to steal points wherever we can. Now, he lost that game by five points within the margin of if he would have kicked those extra points. So all of a sudden, the rest of the NFL throws that idea out with the bathwater. But I, I don't think that's the right thing. I think you need to continue to hammer this because the Chiefs are going to outscore you. It's just an inevitability at this point. Yeah, and I agree with you that McDermott's decision-making deserves scrutiny too because LaFleur's was more egregious because it was one situation specifically at the end Mm -hmm. of the game and you could see how that worked out. But McDermott's was a strategy throughout the game. And then towards the end, when they start to claw their way back in, you see how those decisions added up so that they were in a point where they were just a little bit too far outside of a margin they could claw back from. And if they had gone for it and they had trusted their 
red zone offense and you have a quarterback like Josh Allen, he's the perfect kind of red zone quarterback because he has mobility um, and he, you can use that mobility, especially in the red zone to, you know, whether it's Allen runs in the ball or it's a decoy and then he throws. I mean, there's just so many more options there when you have a quarterback like Josh Allen in the red zone that make the bills good in the red zone. And they didn't take advantage of that. Yeah. And during the game, I was sending a few messages back and forth with someone who works um, in analytics in the NFL. And the, just the response was, and, and again, it's easy for people who write these models to sit there and say, well, okay, they're not following the rules. And so they deserve to lose. And I think we all um, do eliminate an element of that in our own, you know, I know I do where like, you know, we roll our eyes at coaches who say, oh, well, I had to go with my gut. Sometimes they're right. And sometimes coaches know things that we don't know. Guys are hurt. They're not confident. They're not playing well, whatever. Um, but I think when when it comes to Kansas City in particular, like, why isn't this a universal thing? Like, mm-hmm. they've only lost 10 times in three years. They've only scored fewer than 25 points, I think, eight times in three years. Like, why aren't you trying to score more points against the Chiefs? It doesn't make any sense. Like, the NBA figured this out years ago that a three-point uh, attempt me- – um, is worth more than a two point attempt. How hasn't the rest of the NFL caught on to this when a team punishes you with points with regularity like that? Yeah. And after one of the decisions to go for the field goal, instead of try for it on fourth down for the touchdown, the cameras showed Josh Allen on the sidelines and he looked really frustrated. And I think you have to weigh that as well, because sometimes the explanation is, well, it's better to get something than nothing after this long drive and you're already trailing. But then there is the emotional um, impact or the psychological is probably a better way of saying it. The psychological impact of, well, we were so close and we know we're going to need to score touchdowns against this team. A field goal doesn't really do anything like it doesn't give you that boost. It doesn't get you that much closer, especially against a team like the Chiefs. And so when they showed Allen on the sidelines looking defeated after going for the field goal instead of the touchdown, it said to me, like, that was the moment to go for the touchdown and give this team some more momentum and confidence to build on. Yeah, I don't know. I I think the Bills will be back um, if Leslie Frazier does not get the Texans job, which who the hell knows uh, who they're hiring there. I mean, based on the interview qualifications beyond Frazier, who is very qualified, it seems like uh, you or me or anybody else can uh, kind of get in here and uh, and give the Texans their plan for uh, for the future. But uh, if Leslie Frazier does return, you return one of the better coaching staffs in the league. You know, the, the team is very young and promising. I think they'll be back. But um, again, I, I think mm-hmm. that anybody who looks at this game and thinks, well, we can still play our game and beat Kansas City is just wrong. It's just, uh, it's not going to happen. And if I'm Tampa Bay, um, you know, and and Bruce Arians might be a tough guy to convince of this. I don't know. But if I'm Tampa Bay, I'm going for it. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going for two and I'm bringing in high school coach Kevin Kelly, the guy who never punts, and I'm having him talk to everybody <laughs> and, uh, and shake everybody straight. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, and while the Bills' offense and Josh Allen in particular took a large step forward this year, the defense did take a step back this year. So uh, if perhaps both units can take a step forward next year, then maybe the Bills are in a position to win this kind of game. But right now, the Chiefs are the class of the AFC, and that is just the hurdle that anyone would have to 
climb over. So, but a congratulations to Bills Mafia. It was a good season. Yeah. You deserved it. Glad it happened. Leave me alone. Would be my <laughs> <laughs> Connor came around. All right. So I'm ready. Yep. <laughs> all right. Topic number three. This brings us to the game itself. Tampa Bay versus the Chiefs. Red team versus red team. An underrated storyline, Connor. Old coach versus old coach. Aged quarterback on the tail end of his legacy versus babyface replacement. To be honest, there were about 30 Super Bowls you'd rather see, but here we are. What say you about this? I don't know. I'm just... Maybe uh, we say this every year. There's probably clips of me saying this every year for the last three years. I'm not excited about this Super Bowl. I'm I'm just not, you know? Connor. I'm not. I, I can't get swept up in the bad, like, oh, it's it's... Tom Brady passing the torch or right. whatever, you know, like, and, right. and that's what it's going to be, you know, and I don't know, like, I don't want to see him, you know, win and I don't want to see the Chiefs win, you know, I'm kind of rooting for like this endless tie thing. I don't know. I it, It's just, it, it's not exciting. The Chiefs are a very exciting brand of football. Uh, the Patriot or the Buccaneers look kind of like the Patriots. It's it's not as exciting of a brand of football. I don't know. I I I wanted a different team. I wanted a Bills Packers Super Bowl. I'm not going to lie to you. So Bills Packers would have been a lot, little bit intriguing, a lot bit intriguing rather. I should say, Connor, if there were ever a Super Bowl that would be an endless loop, yielding no conclusion, then I would say this would be the year for it. 2020 has seemed like a just a endless loop. <laughs> yeah. No conclusion. Yes. Don't really seem to be getting closer to anything. So um, I, I will say, I, I think it is interesting to juxtapose the two quarterbacks on this stage. And I think there are a lot of, uh, I don't know. I think there will be a longevity to what the Super Bowl represents that could be pretty special. Um, but for those who do not like that narrative, Connor among them. Gary Grambling on the Monday Morning Podcast offered a different um, lead narrative, in fact, was how he originally built it. He said the biggest storyline of this game will be uh, the Chiefs being without Mitchell Schwartz and Eric Fisher, who had an Achilles injury, and how that Chiefs line holds up against the Bucks' pass rush. And Gary likened it to the... Brady versus the Giants front matchups just reversed. Interesting comparison. That's a very uh, Gary esoteric sort of way of looking at the Super Bowl. And I wish we could all look at the Super Bowl that way. Yeah, um, well, maybe but, you can, Connor. This is your yeah. opportunity for those who don't want to listen to only the Brady Mahomes storylines. You have the option. You can focus on the offensive line, the game within the game and the trenches. This is your that's your focal point. So that brings me back to, uh, this is funny, like, uh, this must have been like, th- well, the Eagles Patriots, the Eagles Patriots Super Bowl. Um, and that was, I'd been working with the MMQB for maybe like two or th- maybe like a month or two, not even. Um, and our old boss, Peter King, before the game had said, I want you to do a story on how often they double team Fletcher Cox. And I was like, all right, you know, uh, there's a lot going on at the Super Bowl, but uh, this is a very narrow focus, and I do well with narrow focuses. And so that was all I did for the entire Super Bowl was watch Fletcher Cox and count how many times he was double teamed. And I had a blast. I had a really good time. So maybe Gary is on to something here. Yeah, I think think sometimes it is kind of interesting to 
home in on a particular matchup. So there is one option. But um, the Chiefs are narrowly favored in this game from the most recent lines, Connor. Do you think that's right? I don't know. Um, I Probably. And it's one of those things where we're probably underplaying slightly Tampa Bay's defense and we're probably overplaying slightly Kansas City's offense, though probably not much. Um, you know, I, I think both of those teams, there's room for error. We've seen them at very imperfect points in their season, but the difference is when the Buccaneers look bad, they look awful and when the Chiefs look bad they're still winning games by seven or eight points and so I guess for me that would be the determining factor in saying that they're a favorite on on my end at least. Connor I also want to make the point that it really burns even more right now since there are two red teams in the Super Bowl that the Bucks did not go with a creamsicle uniform this year. I know. This would have been the perfect showcase for creamsicle. You know, a lot of people, I got a lot of negative reply at the beginning of the season when Tampa Bay signed Tom Brady. I said, you had to go creamsicle because this is what you're doing. You're selling out for the the attention and for people to just say, look at you and buy the jerseys and all that crap. And you got to go. Uh, you got to go creamsicle, but they didn't. They're not going to do it in the Super Bowl. And I'm just, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just bummed. It's not going to be an aesthetically pleasing matchup. It's very red. I think I've mentioned a few uh, shows ago that my two-year-old who's been doing my playoff picks for me, sorry, uh, Editor Mitch, uh, but it's true, um, really uh, is in on the color green right now and was disappointed that the Green Bay Packers didn't make it to the Super Bowl. She thought that blue is my favorite color for some reason, so she was bummed out that the Bills also did not make it to the postseason. So, I don't know. It's just... Uh, <laughs> didn't we have an all-red Super Bowl last year, too? Yes. 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 Ugh. So, this is two straight years of an all-red Super Bowl. Ah, Just, uh, I don't know. I don't like it. Uh, we'll see what else is on, you know, I might flip through the channels, um, see if there's any, uh, Hallmark, uh, movies are not after Christmas, you know, people don't realize this, but if you love the Hallmark movies during Christmas season, um, it's, they basically just do the same thing all year round for like different months of the year. It's not just confined to Christmas. And so January, there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of like post Christmas pre-Valentine's Day sort of kismet meetup movies. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's what I'll be doing uh, on uh, February 8th. So Connor is joking to anyone listening and <laughs> concerned that you will not be able to read his Super Bowl takes on the site. Um, Connor will be watching and writing. So but this is going to be a weird Super Bowl, Connor, because everything's virtual. All of the coverage leading up to the game, uh, all of the coverage after the game, everything's via Zoom. So normally we have this media night where the entire roster parades out. And yes, there is like a strange pomp and circumstance that doesn't seem to match what it is. I mean, it's it's a media night. Players are coming out on a stage for interviews, but it is an opportunity normally for every member of the team, every assistant coach, you know, every last player, every person that you never hear from all year to have their day in the spotlight. And so there isn't that. There's also normally three days of media where every player is available and you can just go up to their table uh, in the press area and interview whoever you want. Um, There is also not that this year. So 
the coverage for those looking for interesting storylines will be a lot different, you know, and there will be a lot fewer opportunities for interesting storylines or, or just t- the tiniest little nuggets that you could maybe only get if you wander up to, you know, Joe Blamar's table to ask him about the Dr. Octopus play that Andy redesigned. That's a great point. Um, and letting go of media night, uh, for the, for those who don't know, media night is like, we're all stuffed into a hockey rink or a basketball arena. And, um, they just let anybody basically who says, I want to ask anybody a question, pour in there. And, you know, you're kind of like elbow to elbow with someone in front of Andy Reid, who's wearing like a mask that says like Dr. Fart or something like that. And you're trying to compete for Andy Reid's attention. It's, it's like full contact reporting. Um, I will not miss that, but you're right. I do miss the rest of access, which I think is the thing that the NFL still does the best. Like there were, you know, maybe a, Two days before the Super Bowl last year, I remember being able to just sit and have a conversation with Robert Sala about the 49ers defense in a very relaxed and casual setting. And that's great. You know, I think that's what really we uh, look for. And it helps us understand the game and relay that. Very interested to see kind of how that stuff all changes. And, you know, because especially for you and uh, Jenny and uh, Greg Bishop do the Super Bowl story for our um for our magazine there's so many good layers to your reporting and while you guys do a lot of that without the help of media access i'm sure it helps to tie up some loose ends and stuff and i don't know i just like the super bowl game story that that you guys do so i anything that makes it better is is good for me well connor my first introduction to super bowl media day was the super bowl 42 media day and it was at the stadium in arizona and uh, I first realized what this was all about when a reporter proposed to Tom Brady. <laughs> and he asked in return, what's your name? Uh, the reporter was dressed in a wedding dress. <laughs> so there's, a. I mean, we are certainly not going to miss out on that kind of stuff. I had uh, my, my favorite Super Bowl media story, media day story was, um, when the New York Super Bowl, uh, the Broncos availability was on a boat, um, oh, which right. was, you know, not ideal for people who, uh, you know, don't like constantly rocking or, you know, not me, but people who might have drank too much the day before and are trying to come and do media availability. And I remember asking Paris Lennon of the Denver Broncos uh, about his time in the XFL and then uh, a, a camera person from uh, a network like challenged me to a fight at that point because he was angry that I was in front of him when he was trying to tape Paris Lennon's response to my question. And I said, hey, could you just give me a minute? And then he said, well, I'm going outside right now and you're going to meet me down out there to fight like off the boat. And I was like, well, I'm not leaving the boat uh, <laughs> and uh, certainly not to go talk to you. But yeah, so media day, very weird, uh, very weird experience for sure. With that uh, the very exciting uh, story, let's go to uh, news topic number four. Um, but before we do, congratulations to Coach Pete, our Buccaneers fan resident uh, super listener yes. uh, who has emailed us uh, many times, tweeted us on Sunday saying, hey, I'm not going to send you the email, but how cool is this? <laughs> very cool, Pete. Very happy for you. Um, uh, 
you know, you are with, uh, we, we can vouch for you. You are not one of the Johnny come lately bucks fans that will now all pile in here and, uh, and criticize Jenny and I for our bad bucks takes throughout the season. Pete, you are with us from day one. And so we, uh, appreciate you. And, uh, he was a visionary. Yes. Yes. Very visionary. And also very politely pointed out that we were probably wrong, but didn't say it in a, uh, (laughs) told you so way. So thank you, Pete. (laughs) We could all learn a little something from Pete. So good for you. Uh, So news topic number four. uh, Now for the fun stuff, the Detroit Lions are officially searching for a trade partner for Matthew Stafford. Deshaun Watson is reportedly eyeing a move to the Jets. Cam Newton is on the market. Aaron Rodgers is unhappy in Green Bay. This could truly be the listicle maker's dream offseason, the kind of thing that yours truly, Connor, does keyboard exercises every day for. Um, it could get nuts, Jenny, right? This this could get nuts. Yes, it will get nuts. And it was what, Connor, two years ago when we were like, pretty much every team in the league has their quarterback situation settled and chaos. It doesn't take long <laughs> for things to devolve into chaos. And I really enjoy it for a couple of reasons, Connor. One, I love the era of player empowerment. Your career is finite, and hey, players have leverage. The team cannot win without a quarterback. So players now are using that in ways to hold their organization accountable or try to go play somewhere else. And I think we should look on this not with the eye of what are they doing? They're not putting the team first. No, they're putting their body on the line every week, and Every situation is different, obviously. The Lions, for instance, was a mutual parting of the ways. But the point being is we are potentially entering an era where players in the NFL are leveraging their individual worth in a way like players in the NBA are. And this will make for more exciting off-seasons. The second point I wanted to make, Connor, is... Gary and I on the Monday morning show pulled up your list of potential destinations for Matthew Stafford, and you included 10, which is a third of the league, and it seems like a lot. However, all of them are totally legitimate. So yes, there is going to be a lot of intrigue because there are a lot of potential destinations that could make sense for these high-profile quarterbacks on the move or potentially on the move. I love it. I mean, I, this is this is or season. This is what I get fired <laughs> up about. On Saturday, I was enjoying a uh, uh, I was enjoying a nice meatball stromboli, um, uh, and I was sitting around. And then editor Mitch texts me. I was not on the computer, and he says Matt Stafford landing spots. Let's go. And this is you know you run into the phone booth and you change into the cape and and you make it happen. And uh, I, I I think this is so much fun because you can envision so many different things uh, mm-hmm. and so many different plausible scenarios there. Um, uh, I I like the idea of Matthew Stafford finally realizing his potential. I think we all agree that he's a great quarterback who has been playing in a horrible franchise for the last, you know, 11 years. He's had some good coaches. Jim Caldwell was a a very good offensive coach and he's had some really bad coaches too. Um, And so a lot of that comes into play. Um, I don't know. This, this is just going to get me fired up, but I, I, to your first point, I do love the fact that like, it's totally normal now for Matthew Stafford to see them hire Dan Campbell and then just be like, no, I, uh, I don't want to do this. Uh, I would like to go somewhere else. And uh, we're all fine with it. And that's great. Yeah. And that one did make sense for both sides. And I will give some credit to the staff that Campbell assembled. He has brought in a lot of coordinators um, who he's worked with at different points in his career. But we talked last week about uh, 
whitehead coaches bearing some of the responsibility mm-hmm. for creating staffs that are not entirely white and that are giving deserving candidates of color an opportunity. Uh, and Dan Campbell has done that. So while I also reacted like, what is this press conference about biting kneecaps? And this is the kind of to- <laughs> toxic masculinity we do not need in the NFL. Uh, I did see how he assembled the staff. And I thought that that was what we need more of uh, in the league. So Kudos for that. But back to the original point here. One thing that I also like, Connor, about the quarterbacks uh, putting pressure on organizations or making their intentions known is it is one way to hold ownership accountable. And that is something that is really hard in the NFL. And particularly with the hiring conversations, we say nothing's going to change unless the owners recognize their own biases. But who's holding the owners accountable? They're the ones holding the checkbooks. They're the billionaires. They're their own bosses. But when quarterbacks call things out in organizations that are not being done well, and I think Deshaun Watson is the best example of this currently, um, that is a way to hold ownership accountable because if your star quarterback who is your best hope for future success doesn't want to play there anymore and that's partly because of decisions made by the owner um, then that is the only thing perhaps that can cause the owner to question some of the decisions they've made some of the ways uh, they've interacted with the players uh, some of the things they've allowed or created within their organization yeah I, I love it. I think it's great. And from a business perspective, too, I remember um, a couple months ago reading a morning consult survey um, about younger fans. Uh, so the generation that goes after ours, Jenny, whatever the what are post millennials, what are post millennials? Is it Gen Z? Gen Z? Yeah. Gen Z and below, uh, you know, whatever they're whatever the rest of them are called. Um it's esports and it's the NBA. And the reason that it's the NBA is player movement. And I think that that connects to how a lot of us came up as fans, where maybe it's Madden or fantasy football, where you're used to putting players on different teams. You know, I think the idea of classic fandom, you know, I grew up as a Texans fan because my dad is a Texans fan or my mom is a Texans fan. It it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that having Matthew Stafford move around every couple years or Aaron Rodgers finish the prime of his career with another team is only going to help the NFL compete heat in what has really been a, a, a seismic shift in the way that people view sports. You know, I think that, um, and, and this just aligns with that, and I love it. I, you know, I think that having Deshaun Watson move, having Matthew Stafford potentially team up with, I don't know, Frank Reich in Indianapolis, you know, Deshaun Watson with the Jets, I mean, this is just flat out good for business, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And it just, it prevents that long slog, you know? I, I think that it probably in some ways is freeing for teams as well. I mean, it just prevents you from like being anchored to somebody for 20 years, you know, and trying to maximize the roster and then break it down and build it back up. And I don't know. I just think this is like a great off season for the future of the NFL. And I think what will be interesting as we sort through potential destinations for quarterbacks on the move is what does each of them want and what is most important? So when Brady was on the move, he wanted a team with a lot of offensive weapons, which was an acute concern for him at the end of his Patriots tenure. Um, Is that the most important factor for quarterbacks looking for other destinations? Is it the head coach? 
Uh, is it the owner? Is it the organizational culture? What is the biggest priority? I mean, all of those things factor into a decision, but there has to be something that you value above all else. And what would be the deciding factor as these quarterbacks look for destinations? The other thing, obviously, is how, how can some of them get out of their current situations? What is the path out? For some, it's easier than others. And uh, what is the cost for their current team? Uh, are they willing to move on? And if so, are they willing to pay the cost that would, uh, or are they, or is the other organization willing to pay the cost for the quarterback? And is the current team willing to lose the quarterback? Yeah. If you had to guess, if I had to put you on the spot, we have Stafford, we have Watson, we have, I'll, I'll throw Cam Newton into that category. Mm -hmm. Um, and Aaron Rodgers. where do you think the four of them land? Where's the, we hear too much about the, or landing spots. I want Ah. the rentist landing spots. You know, I want the good stuff. So I wonder about Rodgers if he does actually leave. It seems like that would be a difficult path to get out of the Packers. And this kind of came up post-game in a moment when, you know, there were a lot of heightened emotions around that game. So that one I'm interested to see how exactly that sorts out. I still think the most likely situation would be for him to stay in Green Bay. Deshaun Watson... I love the idea of the dolphin swap. I don't know if it's feasible, but I like that fit a lot. And I know there's been a lot of chatter of Stafford to the Colts, but I think for a reason, I think it makes a lot of sense with Philip Rivers retiring and he would see that as uh, a destination where, you know, Frank Reich has had a lot of success with quarterbacks and um, I feel like he would be a good fit there. You could continue to play in a dome uh, for for a lot for a lot yeah. of the year. Um, you know the division is bad for at least a little while longer. You know the Texans are going to stink. The Jaguars are going to rebuild a little bit, and the Titans are probably not going to be able to keep this up. Like you could go out there and win a division in your first year pretty e- right. not easily. I mean nothing's easy, but um, yeah, I like that one a lot. My favorite like subtle twist in this entire thing is going to be we might find out like how much Matt Patricia and Matt Stafford did or did not get along because he's with the Patriots. And a lot of people have talked about, you know, Matt Stafford to the Patriots. And what if he's like, I'm not going to work for you again. You know, I I think that's something that's really fascinating. I like um, Martin Mayhew, who's the general manager of the Washington football team drafted Matt Stafford, put Mm -hmm. the best team that Matt Stafford has ever had around him. Ron Rivera is a good, no nonsense coach. Like he could be interested in maybe getting away from the crap a little bit and and knowing that he could go somewhere like that and everything's going to be kind of okay although with the Washington football team that's never really totally okay but yeah I I think there's a lot of really fun Mm -hmm. options here and a lot of teams with with draft capital and um you know, the one chaos scenario I proposed, which I doubt comes to fruition, but Dan Campbell coming from the Saints, Sean Payton needs a quarterback, um, and what Dan could not get, because the Saints only have three draft picks next year, um, although they might get more um, uh, for some of the coordinators that got hired, so they might end up getting more com- compensatory picks, but um, you know what they could get in return are those foundational guys that coaches like to bring with them to other places you know we've always seen coaches resign some of their old guys uh, maybe that is a factor in the trade there and you get Sean Payton and uh, Matt Stafford together which is I think a really exciting thing in New Orleans as well 
Yeah, yeah. And the other two wildcard type destinations would be like the 49ers and the Rams, two mm-hmm. teams that have had recent success but have question marks at the quarterback position. Um, so those are some interesting ones to throw into the mix as well. Yeah. I don't know. I just I just love quarterback controversies. Yeah. So yeah. good. It, it's it's what a bright spot. Um, all right. So we are going to uh, pivot over to the Oracle, which is uh, the precursor to everyone's favorite segment, the Ventus Consensus. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb today and say that um, I'm going to go out on a limb today and say that I think Deshaun Watson does end up with the Jets. Like, I think this is going to happen. Um, I just kind of feel it in my gut. He looks good in green. Uh, I think that he would, the message to ownership there would be, you know what? Uh, I told you to, I told you that to interview this guy, you didn't. And now I want to go play for him. Uh, They're running that Shanahan system. I think that's going to be attractive to him. Uh, you know, if you're the Jets, you, you do a little outreach. You say we have $70 million in cap space. Who do you want to sign as a wide receiver? We'll listen to you. And, uh, man. And if you're the Texans, I think it also makes some sense because you're trading him to a team that, you know, you want the that first-round pick to be as high as possible that you're going to get in return. I think that might be the safest bet. Like, if you're analyzing all the risks, that team is still not ready to compete, even with Deshaun Watson. They're still a long way away. I don't know. I like that. I think everything sort of locks in for me. Um, and Deshaun Watson gets to come to New York. And uh, how fun would that be? We'd be neighbors right down the road in Florham Park. So <laughs> No, I really like it. And people should be taking Watson's intention seriously. Uh, just because he hasn't come out and said anything public or hasn't definitively made a trade demand to the organization, the frustrations that he has are very real and may very well be past the point of any kind of repair so I think that's a great one Connor I mean I think we should be expecting the very real possibility that Watson plays in a different color next year Oof, so exciting all right uh let's get to uh the meat and potatoes of the show the heart and soul of the weak side podcast everybody's favorite the Ventus consensus consensus Connor I think this offseason the step that needs to be taken by the NFL is to push the hiring process back to after the Super Bowl. The NFL did take a decent amount of initiatives last year uh, to expand the Rooney rule to coordinator positions, for instance, and to encourage teams to consider more candidates of color and to uh, push forward with implicit bias training. Uh, But... The results from this hiring cycle indicate that there needs to be further action. As as of this point, there is uh, no none of the new coaches hired are black. There is still one opening, the the Houston Texans opening. Um, But I think one step that will just help overall and will help all candidates be fully considered and be able to focus on interview. Uh, requests and interview preparation, regardless of how far their current team goes, is to move the hiring process post-Super Bowl. There isn't really a compelling argument against it. Yes, the Senior Bowl would take place before then, but uh, if I remember correctly, Connor, it's not uncommon for scouting staffs to go to the Senior Bowl without a coaching staff in place. And if there is a team that is 
tapped for the senior bowl that doesn't have a coach in place, then I guess you could go to someone else. I, I just don't think that that's a strong enough reason to say that this major flaw in the hiring process should not be corrected this offseason. So I think that is the next step that should be taken. It's just dumb. Like the entire thing is so self defeating that half the staff's. Um, you know, I think one of the reports we saw in Bienemy uh, this weekend was that people were assuming he was out because a lot of the people that he was telling owners he would bring with him were starting to sign elsewhere because they didn't know what to do and they were waiting for other jobs. And it's just, it's silly to me. Like, it's so self-defeating. And, you know, if you're a league that's all about competitive balance, why are you helping or almost like cordoning off the best coordinators in the league and forcing them to stay with the best teams in the league. Like, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me that just now Brian Dable can start talking to people that, um, you know, it just, you're not getting that much of a leg up. I feel like it's three weeks, you know, and I remember talking to a lot of first time head coaches for a story that I did um, back when I worked for NFL Network about that first three weeks and what you get done. And yes, it's busy and yes, it's hectic, but so much of it is just figuring out, you know, what kind of person you are, what kind of leader you are, um, how you want to run sort of the administrative stuff. And I feel like that could all be expedited, you know? So I don't know. I mean, just, or just push everything down a little bit doesn't make any sense that we're, we're we're this this entire process it's almost like they just don't want to change it because they know it's wrong and they don't want to admit like how kind of crazy this entire thing has gotten right and it's obviously possible to hire someone after the super bowl because for coaches who coach in the super bowl and then are hired afterward that's their starting point so it's not like it's that big of a you know a wrinkle in the process or a wrench in the process i should say rather and just think about everything that goes into an interview. I mean, you have to assemble your staff list. So you have to be making calls around the league, constantly in touch with people. You have to know the roster of the team that you're interviewing with. You have to have a plan for the roster. You have to have, uh, yes, a lot of being a head coach is some kind of uh, ethos that you bring in regardless of which team, but there are also specific questions about the team you're interviewing with that you're going to have to ask and you have to do research to do that. So a lot of candidates end up relying on their agents. Then it puts a lot more power in the agent's hands. Th this flawed process also results in situation with Josh McDaniels and the Colts where maybe he wasn't ready to make that decision while his team was on a Super Bowl run. I mean, you can sort of understand that side of it too. So Started after the Super Bowl and make it more equitable. Any I agree. More, any equitable any any move that makes the hiring process more equitable is better for everyone. So I agree. And better for you all, listeners. That's right. <laughs> well, right. Connor, this was a another jam-packed show, and we have two more weeks this season to discuss the events of an NFL season yeah. unlike any Man. other. We're here. I mean, we did it. Good good for us. Good for you. Um, good for Pete. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think I'm going to come around. My other oracle is that I'm going to come around on this Super Bowl. Just give me a week, you know, and then I'll be and then I'll be there for it. All you know? right. Well, well, fortunately, Connor, <laughs> we will be back right here next week. So we'll have a built in check in to see how take the ah. temperature temper temper temperature I, I don't know i'm stretching too hard okay 
Anyways, thanks as always, everyone, for listening to the Weekside Podcast, which is me, Jenny Brentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston, SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody, Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product, Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. <laughs>